What major university can trace its origins to the telegraph? Hmm. Why is a self-employed professional called a freelancer? Oh, answers to those and other questions coming up in this episode of The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marsha Smith. Welcome to The Off-Ramp, a chance to slow down, steer clear of crazy, take a side road to sanity, and enjoy some fun with trivia. So, welcome to Button Trivia. <laughs> we only have two button questions, but we've got some interesting trivia and beyond that Unbeknownst as well. to the other person, we both had, it, we do that often, don't we? Yeah, yeah. Have uh, similar questions. Compare notes right before we go on. It's like, oh, I got a button question. Yeah. Okay, good. All <laughs> right, too. well, we'll get to those a little later, but first... What major university can trace its origins to the telegraph? We have all these universities that have been, you know, born over the years, and some of them came from fortunes that were from specific businesses. This is one I didn't know had anything to do with the telegraph. Well, then I don't either, Bob. I have no idea. Well, just think of some university names. Well, I am. There's Harvard and Yale and Columbia and Cornell. You did it. You said it. Cornell. Cornell University. Yay! Founded by Ezra Cornell. In Ithaca. He was instrumental in the success of Samuel Morse's telegraph. Did you know that? No, I didn't. I didn't either. Because he came up with something that helped the first telegraph lines. They were not hanging overhead. The first telegraph lines were buried in the ground in lead pipes. That's how they thought they would lay the network. It would be underground. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. So he sold plows. He invented a special plow that would dig a ditch two feet, six inches deep, lay the pipe, lay the pipe and the telegraph wire in the ditch, and then cover it up as it went. When it was discovered that pipe moisture and poor insulation was shorting out wires, then he invented a way to string the telegraph wires from tall wooden poles. So he was there to help at every step of the way with the telegraph, how they were going to do this, because this was before electrical lines yeah. or anything else. So he came up with the idea of stringing wires from pole to pole. That was his idea. And he even invented the glass insulators used to this day to connect wires together on telephone I'll be poles. And then he made a fortune from that and he made started a, a university? He founded Western Union after that. And he founded Cornell University, which he endowed with his investments in federal land. It's good to be endowed. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was interesting. It is. Speaking of interesting, mm -hmm. you and I have both been freelancers in our life and still are sometimes. So, Bob, why is a self-employed professional called a freelancer? Well, my understanding is it goes back to those medieval days, the knights who were... Oh, darn. Yeah, I they were mercenaries. They were freelancers. So yes. they, you could hire them to come oh, and fight I your battles. Was, yes, I found that fascinating. But you knew, damn well, you. <laughs> damn you to hell. <laughs> wow. That's pretty strong, Marsh. Damn you that's to my, hell. No, that's... Uh, who, who is Holy that? Holy cow. That's from that monkey movie. That was, the <laughs> monkey guy. I said it, uh, you know. Oh, Charlton Heston, Planet of the Apes. Yeah, damn you to hell yes. when he saw but the Statue, Statue of Liberty. Liberty. Yeah, so. That's right. I was, was quoting Charlton Heston, Bob. Charlton Heston, okay. <laughs> oh, all right, thank you. I'm glad to know that because I thought, wow, that's pretty strong. Oh, it was. But I found that interesting. And uh, 
The word freelance came out of the period between the 14th and 16th centuries when mercenary knights, with no particular allegiance, and they'd take their lances into battle for the prince or, or state that paid them the most money. Mm-hmm. They were referred to as freelancers by authors in the 19th century. Oh, so back then they didn't call themselves that. No, This was no. a 19th century invention right. yeah, to call it, these mercenaries correct. freelancers. In, in their uh, literary works. Okay. And they uh, operated much like the gunfighters in the American West, like Paladin. Yay. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> Have gun, will travel. Yeah. And, of course, now a freelancer is anyone who works independently and is probably poor. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is true, too. And I always I knew that, uh, but I always liked the lance thinking the lance was my pen when I was a freelance uh-huh. writer. You oh, know? okay. That's well, how that's, I looked at it. Yeah, I didn't know that, and I found that. Very interesting. Well, here's another expression, Marsha. I want you to tell me the answer to this. <laughs> this comes from the musical we both liked, Oklahoma. The corn is as high as an elephant's eye. Remember that line? Of course. Okay. How high is that? 13 feet. 13 feet tall? That's well, be that where the eye is? Yeah. No. Well. All right. Let's go back here. What is How tall does corn actually grow? But the full-grown corn. Oh, well, uh, f- average. Five and a half, six feet. Seven feet. Okay. Seven feet is where full-grown corn usually stops. But the Bronx Zoo says the average elephant's shoulder is seven feet, eight and a half inches high. So an elephant's eye is well above seven feet, eight. It's probably about eight feet high. So the corn will not be as high as an elephant's eye, just so you know. <laughs> Jeez, you are, you're the kid in the front row, aren't you, with his hand up in ooh, the air? Ooh, oh, I got God. some. I, got I some. would throw spitballs at people <laughs> like you. Okay, here's one. <laughs> I got another one. Oh, God. Slow as a snail's pace. How slow uh, is a snail's slow? pace? Okay, we're talking uh, MPH. Is we're that talking we're about inches per hour. <laughs> how far does a snail go? How, I'll say four inches. Per hour? Yeah. Wow. According to the Guinness Book of World Records, a snail's pace varies from 23 inches an hour to 198 inches wow, an hour. Wow, well, they're pretty frisky. 23 inches wow. an hour to 198 inches an hour. I would have never guessed all that. Even so, at that rate, it's a long way to Tipperary. <laughs> what the? Where is Tipperary, Bob? Uh, yeah, there's Next some. question, Marsha. Okay. <laughs> well, let's do a little sports question here, Bob. This woman is a three-time winner of the Laureus World Sports Award for Sportswoman of the Year. Three times she won. How do you spell Laureus? L-A-U-R-E-U-S. I looked up the pronunciation, and it looks like Laureus, okay? Never heard of that. Yeah, me either. In 2019, at the U.S. National Gymnastics Championship, she performed the first ever performed double-double dismount on a beam and the first triple-double in competition. I don't even know what that means, yeah. the double-double <laughs> dismount and the triple-double. Remember I was playing out in the yard the other day? And, Holy no. <laughs> cow. Who is she? Sounds painful. It does. She's, I don't know. I have no okay. idea. She's the amazing 23-year-old Simone Biles, and she's become one of the all-time sporting greats. She won her first gold medal at age 16 and holds the world's record for most medals overall in world championship history, 25 of them. Those are just amazing records. And somebody like that has really been very, very dedicated to one thing for years and years and years. That's from the time she was 16. Now she's only 23. Wow. Has all those accolades. Well, this is a... 
This was a tragedy, and out of it came something good, Marcia. So tell me, what advance in modern medicine came from a mustard gas accident? Oh, jeez. What advance in the, medicine? Uh, the gas mask? No. Don't know. Chemotherapy. Really? Yeah. Now, and it's from a mustard gas accident in World War II. That's where the anti-cancer drugs have their origins in toxic chemicals that were designed for warfare. Now, I think we all know that mustard gas was first deployed by the Germans in the First World War. That was... Controversial. Oh, very criticized, and it was outlawed by the Geneva Conventions. Well, this was the secret thing we didn't know about for years till after World War II. I didn't know about this. But by World War II, the Allies had their own secret stockpiles of mustard gas just in case. Really? Just in case the Germans did it again. Really? Yeah. We could do it back then? Well, yeah. And the, uh, those Jeez. supplies were secretly sent to Europe. And here's what happened. The plan went wrong in December 1943 when Germany bombed the Allied port of Barrie, Italy. They sunk 17 ships, including a secret cargo of mustard gas. That oh, got into geez. the port. It got oh, into the God. water. And more than 1,000 servicemen died. 800 others were hospitalized, and many of the victims were victims of oily sludge in the water that inflicted burns, blisters, and internal injuries. The Army didn't know what the hell happened, so they sent a military doctor, Stuart Alexander, to investigate. He discovered the culprit, but it was too late because men were dead or dying because first responders had not been informed there were toxic agents there, so they weren't washed or decontaminated yeah, the way yeah. they should have been. Uh, and the Allies demanded that whole thing remain a secret because they didn't want to uh, be known that we had mustard gas. Yeah. You know? We hadn't planned to use it unless the Germans did, but if, but if we had it there and it became known, that was going to be very bad publicity for the Allies in yeah. World War II. But Dr. Stuart Alexander went on to study what happened. And he discovered that the nitrogen mustard attacked white blood cells, and the first to disappear were the white cells in the lymph organs. That gave him the idea that the poison could be harnessed to target cancer cells, which are white blood cells running wild in the body. And that led to a whole generation of post-war chemotherapy drugs to treat cancer. Wow. Chemotherapy came out of basically looking into how mustard gas killed people. All right, Bob, why does men's fashion dictate that the bottom button of your vest should always be left unbuttoned? That, I think, had to do with riding on a horse, that if you had that there, it would buckle and it would make it look bad. So they said, well, uh, when you're riding a horse, you keep that, your bottom of your jacket unbuttoned. Ah, no. Oh, okay. <laughs> what's the, uh, <laughs> it what's the reason? It sounds possible, but who rides a horse with a vest on? Well, people rode horses with jackets and vests when they hunted in England. Well, in, you're right. That's where all a lot those, of this stuff comes all from. Oh, those frisky Englanders. Yes. Once again, we have to go back to British royalty. Okay. <laughs> Edward VII in the 1800s was a large fellow with a gut to match. He often uh, would overeat. And he would undo his bottom button because he was bulging out. And his fellow diners didn't want him to feel uncomfortable. Oh, of course not. Don't let one of the yeah, members of royalty feel uncomfortable. Right. So they did this <laughs> they did the same of course. to make him feel fine about it. And so it became fashion of the day, right down to this day. Right down to this day, yeah. Isn't that crazy? You go to get a, a suit tailored yeah, or something. Anything. I remember when guy says, No, you don't button the, the bottom button. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But that's what it goes back to. That's so funny. Isn't that crazy? Yes. Okay, Bobby, what do you got next? I've got something that deals with movies. We've all seen the clapboard, you know, where yeah. it's like, oh, the... take one. Okay. 
What's the origin of the clapboard? Where did that come from? What was the need for that? Uh, uh, well, didn't Charlie Chaplin need one to keep track of everything when he was rolling out movies? You well, that's know? the slate board. One that's different. This is oh, the clapboard. Oh, then I'm confused. How is it different? Well, the clapboard is a combination of a slate and the clapboard. Slate is, for people listening, is basically like it was a blackboard, and then you would chalk in the scenes yeah. and the directors and all that. But the clapboard is a combination of that plus these wooden blocks that snap yeah. together. What was the origin for that? What was the reason for I that? I don't know, Bob. That's to synchronize the sound in the picture. It only oh. came into play when, oh, sound, when sound pictures. Came in. But putting them together was the sound man who got tired. He was lazy. <laughs> <laughs> now, oh, the, that's good. The guy who invented the the idea of two wooden blocks snapping together that was done in Australia by the head of F Tree Studios, F W Thring. He came up with that in the early 30s. But combining those two. Uh, came up because of a guy named Leon B. Leon. Yes, that was his name. He died in 1998, but he came from the silent days. He was a gag man and a prop man, and then when the sound came in, he became a sound man. And so he had the slate he had to handle, and he had these two wooden blocks, and it was like, I have to carry these three things into the set, and he didn't like it. So he said to one of the carpenters, why don't you just hinge these two blocks together? So he did. Uh-huh. He liked that. But then he still had this slate. He says, why don't you just nail it all together? So they did nail it together. Okay. And one more thing he invented as a result of that, they noticed that on camera it was hard to see when those blocks actually hit each other sometimes. You'd hear it clap, but you couldn't see it. So he decided to wrap electrical tape, black electrical tape around the two wooden blocks and then cut them with the knife. So that's where you get the hash mark design you see on clapboards, those diagonal lines. This was done with black tape on white blocks of wood. That's where it came from. And And he he, died in 1998? 1998, yeah. He said, uh, one day I just told somebody, nail those together, will you? The rest was (laughs) history. And he actually, in 1990, was officially recognized for his many industry contributions, including the clapboard slate. He also invented the fishpole microphone. When they were having to use microphones and they didn't want to be in scenes, he hung one from a fishing pole, and that was the beginning of the boom mics. The boom mic, very cool. Well, here's another. Why is the use of behind-the-scenes influence called pulling strings? Pulling strings. I always thought it was like a puppet thing. It was like, well, here's a puppet. He's pulling uh-huh. the strings on things. Did you? These marionettes. Is you that know? what you thought? That's what I thought. Well, not a bad thought. What's the answer? Marionettes oh, okay. <laughs> are puppets controlled by strings and were popular at the courts in the French monarchy. The puppet shows used to satirize gossip and could be embarrassing to anyone involved in a scandal because apparently they'd reveal all in the puppet show. Oh. <laughs> when money was slipped to the puppeteer to keep him quiet or to influence him to embarrass someone else, it was said that the person offering the bribe and not the puppeteer was the one pulling the strings. Oh, well, that's fascinating. Yeah, so it's totally actually opposite of what you'd think. So the puppeteer might do something in the puppet show that would embarrass the uh, important people in the audience. right. And that somebody would bribe him and say, you know, pull the strings. Yeah, here's a farthing. Don't bring up my (laughs) affair, you know. Or bring up Sir So-and-So's affair or his bad breath or who knows what, you know. (laughs) Yeah. Somebody's pulling the strings. Isn't that a great, that's a great expression and a great uh, explanation for it, too. (laughs) <laughs> Let's take a break. Let's take a break. You're listening to The Off-Ramp with Bob. And Marsha. Smith. Time for a little glass of wine here. Wow. <laughs> 
We're back, and you really did take a glass of wine there. I'm surprised at that. Didn't take long either. It was not five in the morning, Bob. Okay. <laughs> All right. Okay. I don't know if you remember the old airline, Pan American Airlines. Of course. They were very, very big. They were very, very powerful. And back in 1968, they offered tickets for a certain flight coming up. What did they offer? For a, a certain special flight? Yes, uh, a special kind of flight that they assumed they would be in charge of people going on. Well, it wasn't like a balloon flight. It was just on the on that Special airline. kind of flight, Marsh, that okay. they had planned for. They oh, actually sold tickets for it. Across the ocean? They, I don't, I don't no. know. What was it? They started taking reservations for the first commercial flight to the moon. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't have guessed that. Bob. Now, of course, they knew that the moon flights were coming up because the Apollo missions were going on. it. So <laughs> they started taking reservations for the first commercial flight to the moon in 1968. And how many people signed up? 90,000 people. Oh, come on. Now, at the time, Pan Am said, we're the world's most experienced airline. They had 6.7 million passengers, 150 jets, went to 86 countries on every continent. They were feeling their hubris. They were powerful. <laughs> so they thought, well, we'll just sign up for the first trips to the moon. We'll be did in charge have, of that. Did you have to pay for it? I don't know. 52 years ago, and those people, if they're still alive, are still waiting to go on that trip. Right. And then you have to wear a mask if you go today. <laughs> yeah. Pan Am went out of business in oh, 1991. Right. Yeah, it seems longer than that, doesn't it? And here's a question I stole from NPR this morning on one of their quiz shows. What land animal has the longest tail? The land animal has the longest tail. Which animal? I'm trying to think of like an aardvark or something like that, like a kind of a rodent-style animal. Yeah, you think of those long... Some crawly animal with a long, spindly tail. A but crawly animal. This is a scientific A term. slithering. A slithering animal. With a, with a tail. Okay. But who has the longest neck in the animal kingdom? Well, the giraffes. And his tail matches his neck, just <laughs> You're like. You're kidding. <laughs> now, isn't that? So it's hiding in plain sight. Yeah. So we're and, noticing the neck. We're yeah. not noticing anything else. That's right. And they're both, the neck and the tail, are about the same size, and that's wow. eight feet. Holy cow, I had no idea. Yeah. And you think of their legs being long, and they're, yeah. boy, they are extraordinary animals. They, they have are. the longest tail and the longest neck. All right, here's a question I have. This is the least used letter in the English language. What is it? And here's a hint it's the only letter not used in a state's name. Okay, well, I should know this. I'm a crypto grammar. The least used letter in the English language, and the hint is it's not in any state's names. I don't know, Bob. Well, it's not a Z because you can find yeah, a Z Arizona. in Arizona. And it's, it's not, not a J. J you can find in New Jersey. Jersey. And how about X's? You can uh, find those in two states. New Mexico. And? and big, big. Big. Big state. Big state. Texas. Oh, I've heard of that. But there's not a single Q in oh. any state's name. Oh, and, that, and that's the... The least used least letter in used. the English language is oh, the Q. Oh, the Q. I should have thought of that. Yeah. I should have had that. Okay, but I didn't. No, you didn't. Especially when we play Bongo. Very disappointed that you didn't have that fan. <laughs> Surprised, Marsh. Yeah, okay. And disappointed. Okay. Okay. Well, Christmas is coming, and I thought we'd pepper in a Christmas question at once a week or so for the next uh, okay. four weeks. What year was the first recorded date of Christmas being celebrated? Roughly. I'm saying Constantinople in 323 A.D. Oh, for God's sake. What is it? It's Constantine. Constantine, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, the Roman Emperor Constantine. He was the first Christian. That's why I picked him. Roman Emperor. Even though he got his name mangled. Yeah. And depending on what you read, it was either 333 or 336. Uh, that he celebrated it. They didn't do the big festival and everything yet. But it was an but, official celebration of yeah, Christmas. in Christmas oh, be in, the, in 333. That's my deductive reasoning. Well, see, and you excelled at that moment in it. That's my... <laughs> what, do you, my what do you mean at that moment? Like I'm, well, I'm an you idiot kn- most no, of the time? No, you okay, know... Okay, what does that mean? You know lots more than you, I you do. You give these very qualified praises to me on this yeah, show, no. like I'm just the biggest <laughs> no, dolt most of the no, time. I, I do deductive reasoning, uh, but you have innate understanding and logic and... Okay, you're, you're piling it on now. <laughs> and knowledge. You have, you have basic knowledge. Okay, well, let's go back to the basic knowledge of what was the last letter added to the 26-letter alphabet. The last letter added. And it's not Z. The last letter added, and it didn't exist on its own until 1524. I'm sure that narrows it down. It does. I was just going to say, I thought it was 1523, but. uh, The last letter added. All right, I'll say B. No, I'll say. (laughs) A, no, C, no. (laughs) Jeez. Just just make a guess. So put us all out of our misery, Marsh. What is the letter? F. No. (laughs) <laughs> no, you're 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 effing wrong. Okay, it's J, ah. J, which did not exist as a letter on its own until 1524. This is kind of interesting. Prior to that time, any letter with the J shape symbolized the sound of the letter I in igloo. I was the J letter for some reason. Oh, really? Then in 1524, an Italian grammarian named Jean Grissino wrote an essay identifying I and J as two separate letters. I became a vowel, J became a consonant associated with the J sound, as in Beijing. J. Okay. So J. that's where J. J. Jumping Jehovah's. And by Jehovah's the way, Marcia, the alphabet used to have six more letters that were eventually dropped. What are they? <laughs> I don't know what they are. <laughs> you gave me that look like Lord. the looks if looks could kill. What? Uh, well. Six letters were dropped from the alphabet, Marcia. <laughs> what are they? Okay. How would I know? B O B. There's three of them. <laughs> B-O-B-B-Y, there's five of them. Okay. Okay. All right. How about Bob. R-O-B-E-R-T? There is six of them. <laughs> let's get let's get fancy. Okay. What animal dung product <laughs> might be a great Christmas gift this year for our daughter? Jeez. Oh, well, that shows how much you think of our daughter. <laughs> She'd love it. I think I know the answer because we we talked about this once before this summer. It's, it's a paper made of made of animal dung. That's right. It's, it actually makes great paper. It beautiful paper. Yeah. And uh, the uh, one of the early adopters of this is a is a company called Poo Poo Paper. <laughs> Appropriate. It is, and they make unique, handcrafted, tree free, eco friendly, odorless, of course, paper gift and stationary products made from elephant, donkey, horse, and cow poo poo. <laughs> Also known as poop, poo, dung, turds, and stools. Oh, gee, gosh. <laughs> Boy, now, I, anybody listening to this, I hope they're not eating lunch or something. Well, I'm just saying, and they're really quite lovely. You can buy journals, notepads, sheets, stationery, and gift products that are a statement to the kind of world we live in. Eco-friendly. Very Those eco-friendly. are good. That's a, that's a good, that was a good set of uh, int- information. That was great. I are loved you, it. Did you really? You are always, you're so good at these questions. <laughs> 
Sometimes. <laughs> you want me to go get the pizza, don't you? No. <laughs> okay, I've got, uh, I'm going to go back to one more item, and it's a clothing item as well, okay? Sure. Okay, this comes from our friend Paul Hoffman out in Pebble Beach, California. All right. Why do men's clothes have buttons on the right while women's clothes have buttons on the left? Well, geez, Louis, I've often wondered that. Um, I guess I don't know. Okay. Well, when buttons were invented, they were expensive. They were worn primarily by the rich. And since most people are right-handed, it's easier to push buttons on the right through holes on the left, right? That's uh-huh. just a normal thing. But wealthy women were dressed by maids. Oh, sure. Dressmakers put Jeez. the buttons on the maid's right, and that's where women's buttons have remained ever since. Oh, that's that's really interesting. Now, that's according to Paul, Paul uh, Hoffman. Paul, I'm, why didn't you send that one to me? I, could have, <laughs> I like that Thank one. you, Paul. Thank you so much for helping it's, us with the off-ramp today. It's, it's boy power. All right, I'm going to wrap Wrap it up with a few modern-day bumper stickers that amuse me. Okay. okay. All right. All right. Sex on television can't hurt you unless you fall off. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. That's a long bumper sticker. <laughs> Beer, helping white people dance since 1837. <laughs> and last headline, suicidal twin killed sister by mistake. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that one's insane. Oh, my goodness. Isn't it funny? It makes you, at first you're going, what's the meaning of that? Oh, I get it. (laughs) Suicidal twin kills sister by mistake. Most of us got that a little quicker, Bob, but okay. Here we go again with the comments. Thanks a lot. Well, uh, that's it for today. I'm Bob Smith. And I'm Marsha Smith. Join us again next time with more fun on The Off-Ramp. You want to go get pizza? (sighs) (laughs) <laughs> always me. I always have to drive out and get that I'll stuff. call, though. Okay. I'll, I'll order All right, it. order it. Now, remember what we like on the top. Uh, let's see. Um, sausage, pepperoni, onions. green peppers, onions. onions. You like those green, green olives. olives. Green olives, but only on yeah. half the pizza because I can't stand those yeah, things. Well, that ruins the flavor. It does ruin the flavor of the pizza. You're wrong. It no, gives it a no, little no, spunk. No, no, no. no. Oh, Is bye-bye, it? everybody. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> The Off-Ramp is produced in association with CPL Radio and the Cedarbrook Public Library, Cedarbrook, Wisconsin.